Today's podcast is sponsored by Bambi. HR managers ain't cheap. Their salaries average $70,000 a year. Go to Bambi.com slash gold to schedule your free HR audit. The podcast is also sponsored by True Niagen. True Niagen helps fuel the cell's energy engines, maintains cellular metabolism, and even supports heart health in combination with a healthy lifestyle. And now you can save 20% off on your first purchase at trueniagen.com slash Peter when you use the promo code Peter. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. As I have been talking about on this podcast, the specter of less loose monetary policy continues to drive the great rotation out of the momentum stocks, the overpriced stocks that enjoyed the huge benefits of the bubble are now collapsing as the Fed has effectively pricked that bubble, not by actually tightening policy, but simply by talking about tightening policy. That's all it took to prick the mother of all bubbles. But as the air is coming out, that air is flowing into the value sector of the global markets, which have been overlooked for the entirety of the move up as people were using those stocks as a source of funds, selling value dividend paying stocks to free up the capital in order to invest in the momentum stocks because there was a huge opportunity cost. Even though a lot of these stocks look cheap, nobody wanted to buy them because if you put money into a value stock, that was money that you couldn't put into a momentum stock. And even if that value stock looked cheap and paid a good dividend, that paled in comparison to the appreciation that was being enjoyed in the speculative end of the market. Well, that greater fool theory dynamic always ends badly. And we're seeing that now as the bottom is dropping out of these stocks. The carnage this week really got started on Thursday because Thursday morning we had a rally in the market. In fact, the Dow, I think, at its high point was up 450 points. And remember, bear markets slide a slope of hope and you get a lot of big rallies, usually early in the morning. And those rallies engender some false confidence. People think, aha, the bottom is in. I'm glad I didn't sell. But of course, then the real move continues. Investors take advantage of higher prices to continue to unload overpriced stocks. And that's exactly what happened because that 450-point rally turned into a better than 300-point decline by the close. That was a 2.2% reversal from the high to the close. It was even more spectacular in the NASDAQ. The reversal there was 3.2%. Now, I think one of the catalysts for the reversal, but I think it would have happened anyway, so I don't necessarily think that this is the reason, but it certainly gave investors a reason to pause, and that was news that broke about Peloton, that they were going to suspend production of their bikes, because obviously they had already produced too many during the pandemic and the demand is not there. And so they don't need to make any more. And that caused a big drop in the stock. I think it fell about 15% 
And I think that caused people to worry. Hey, look what's happening to Peloton. This could happen to other stocks. Demand is not what we thought. And this could apply to a lot of companies, not just Peloton. So I think other stocks were sold in sympathy. Now, Peloton actually rallied back about 11.3% Friday. So it didn't totally recover what it lost because I think the president came out and said the rumors were false. We didn't halt production. So there was a bit of a rally on Friday, but that rally didn't help the rest of the market, which was actually reeling from the news that came out after the close on Thursday from Netflix. Now, Netflix has been one of the darlings. It was one of the key stay-at-home trades. After all, people that weren't going to work were staying at home and they were watching Netflix. And so that was a primary beneficiary of that trade. Well, after the market closed on Thursday, Netflix reported earnings. And though the earnings were better than expected, the subscriber growth was well below expectations. And that's all it took to cause the stock to immediately tank about 20% in after hours trading. It was down as much as maybe 25% on Friday. It closed slightly off the lows, down about 22% on the day. That brought the weekly decline to 24.4%. So far this year, Netflix is down 34%. The month of January isn't even over, and we're now down 43% from last year's high, solidly into bear market territory for Netflix. And you know, also Netflix is a victim of its own success. Look at all of the streaming services that people have to choose from. That's what happens. You become successful and then you get competition. That's why it's dangerous to bid up prices on stocks like a Tesla because, hey, they've got this great product. They're in electric vehicles. Yes, but if you're successful, other companies come in and eat away at your market share. And so investors don't get the type of dominance that they expect. And Netflix has all sorts of competition right now. In fact, earlier in the week, Netflix announced, and I mentioned this on my last podcast, an 11% price increase for their service. And one of the reasons they may be raising prices apart from inflation is because they can no longer drive earnings by picking up more subscribers because it's too competitive out there. In fact, they may be losing some subscribers to these other services. So they're trying to make it up by milking their subscribers for as much money as possible by jacking up prices. But of course, that may give some people a reason to cancel the service because there is so much to choose from. The market is getting saturated. And of course, people only have so much money. There's only so much room in your budget for these services. You can't have them all. But this is starting to weigh on the market. But let me go over the averages because these are some pretty big numbers for January. And again, remember, the January effect is very important. So goes January. So goes the year. Well, if that's the case, this is going to be one hell of a year and not in a good way if you're long, but in a very bad way. So look at the Dow. The Dow ended up down 1.3% yesterday to finish the week down 4.6%. So far this year, the Dow is down 5.7% and we're down 7.3% from the peak. Now, technically, we're not even in a correction territory in the Dow. We're not that far off the highs, 
But the reason that the Dow is holding up is because the stocks in the Dow are not nearly as speculative and momentum-based as some of the stocks that are in the S&P, which is why the S&P is doing worse. Yesterday, the S&P dropped 1.9% on the day to end the week down 5.7%. So far this year, S&P is down 7.7% and we're 8.7% from our high. But what's really weakening the S&P are the tech stocks and other momentum type stocks. Look at the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ dropped 3% on Friday. It ended the week down 7.5% and year to date down 11.6%, 14% now from its peak. We are in correction territory in the NASDAQ. The only index doing worse is the Russell 2000. That index was down 1.8% yesterday, but down 8% on the week, year-to-date down 11.5%, and so far from its peak price last year, the Russell 2000 is down 19.2%. We are less than one percentage point away from a bear market in the Russell 2000, and we're not even finished with the month of January. And the Russell 2000 is not going down because of these big tech stocks. This is more a reflection of the real economy in the U.S. The domestic economy, which is weakening, I'll get to that a bit later in the podcast, earnings also under pressure from a weakening economy. This really tells the story of what's going on, and we are almost in bear market territory. In fact, the rate at which the NASDAQ is dropping, we can be in bear market territory pretty quickly there as well. But let's focus in again on those momentum-type names, the most overvalued of the NASDAQ-type stocks, and the proxy for that that I have been talking about on this podcast is the Kathy Wood ARK Innovation Fund. A-R-K-K is the symbol on that. ARK was down 5.7% yesterday on Friday in one day. Remember, this is not just one stock. This is a whole portfolio of stocks down 5.7%. Supposedly, you get some diversification by being in that ETF, but when you're diversified among extremely expensive, overpriced, high-risk momentum stocks, you might as well have no diversification at all, which is something that I pointed out in the past when criticizing her approach to investing. The ARKK ETF is now down 10.9% for the week. That's one week's decline. Year-to-date, it's down 24.4%. That's an entire bear market in less than a month. But it's worse if you look at how much we're down from the high price, which was, what, a couple of months ago. It's down 55.2%. In fact, if you look at all the money that has gone into the ARC fund since inception, Kathy Wood has net lost money for her customers. So even though she became the darling of Wall Street when there was this big run up, overall, Money has already been lost, even if you take into consideration the early profits, because the fund is still well up from where it was a couple of years ago, but it doesn't matter because most of the money came in when the prices were higher because it was the good performance that sucked in all the money. 
And then when all the money came in, she had to take that money and buy more of the same overpriced stocks that are the reason so many people wanted to buy in. But it was a great contrarian indicator. There's still a lot of air yet to come out of that bubble. Don't make the mistake of thinking that this stock is a bargain just because it's down 50%. It's down 50% from prices that never should have existed in the first place. It's like these department stores, you know, whenever you go into them, if you ever go into a store these days and go to the jewelry department, everything is always on sale. Why? Because everything is priced so high just so they can put it on sale to make you think you're getting a bargain. But you're not. You're actually paying full price because nobody ever pays the actual full price because there's always a sale. Well, that's what's going on here. It's 50% off based on an inflated price. You're still overpaying at 50% off. You need to buy this thing 90% off or something like that before you actually get a bargain. It needs to be on closeout blowout, all sales final type of deal, not just your normal 50% off. When you're running your business, it's those HR issues that can kill you. Wrongful termination lawsuits, discrimination, minimum wage requirements, all sorts of labor regulations, and HR manager salaries ain't cheap. They average $70,000 a year. That's where Bambi comes in, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E. Bambi was created specifically for small businesses. Now you can get a dedicated HR manager who will craft your HR policy and maintain your compliance and do it all for just $99 a month. And with Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat for anything from onboarding to terminations. They'll customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day and do it all for just $99 a month. Best part is month-to-month, no hidden fees, and you can cancel anytime. So go to Bambi.com slash goal right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash gold, spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash gold. But I also want to go over some of these individual stocks so you can have an idea of the type of decline that we are seeing. First of all, I think one of the stocks that epitomizes the bubble was Robinhood because Robinhood is the trading app that a lot of these millennials are using to speculate in these overpriced stocks and cryptocurrencies, which I'll get to soon. But Robinhood, after a lot of fanfare with this IPO, Robinhood stock is down 85% now from last year's high. I mean, well, well into bear market territory. And the reason Robinhood is going down so much is because their customers are broke because the customers own all these overpriced stocks that have collapsed. And so now they have a lot less money to trade, and that means a lot less revenue for Robinhood. Basically, Robinhood was the casino where everybody was gambling, and now all the people that were gambling there are broke. And so obviously, the casino can't make as much money when the customers are broke. Some of the stocks that people were buying in Robinhood were the so-called meme stocks. The two darlings of the meme stocks, GameStop and AMC. GameStop is down 78%. AMC is down 75%. And they're still going down because they're still overpriced. And you know, I talked about this 
ad nauseum when it was happening. I warned about it on this podcast. I said when these stocks were going up, when the music stops, anybody who wasn't sitting down was going to lose. And by sitting down, you had to sell and take a chair on the sidelines. Because if you were still in the game, because you had diamond hands and you weren't going to sell, you were going to go down with the ship. And you know, the most annoying thing about the meme stocks was the fact that you had the media trying to justify what was going on. I was watching on CNBC as they were trying to talk about this new style of investing. Like they were afraid of insulting the millennials because this was just something new. It was just a new style, a new way to invest. There was nothing new about it. It wasn't a style. They weren't investing. It was just gambling. It was just classic pyramid, pump and dump, greater fool, bubble. There was nothing new or innovative about what was going on, yet they were afraid to call it out. I mean, maybe they didn't want to piss off some of their viewers. Maybe they knew they had some young people who were watching CNBC and they didn't want to piss them off by telling them that they were throwing their money away. They don't want to criticize anything because they're afraid to criticize it and then watch it continue to go up. I wasn't afraid. I called the spade a spade out. As soon as I saw it, I warned investors to stay away from these stocks, not to buy these stocks. And now those warnings are being vindicated and there's still a lot of air coming out of the bubble. The smart money, of course, was selling. The insiders were selling, but the meme buyers, the Reddit crowd, These guys don't know what they're doing. A lot of them weren't even gambling with their own money. They got stimulus checks from the government. And so they took the stimulus money and they bought a bunch of stocks, but they had no idea what they were doing. They simply bought stuff because it was going up. They were getting their advice from chat rooms, not realizing that the advice they were getting were from people who had an ulterior agenda. They were trying to pump up stocks that they already owned so they can dump them. The only thing was new was the methodology for pulling off a classic pump and dump type scheme. Look at some other groups of stocks, the stay-at-home stocks. These are the stocks that everybody was buying during the pandemic because people were staying at home. Except the problem was the people buying these stocks were acting as if people would stay at home forever. And so nobody cared about valuations. People were just buying these stocks. I already mentioned one of them, Peloton, which was one of the big losers during the week. Peloton is now down 84% from its high. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code and saving for an emergency fund because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. How many people that had big gains in Peloton, because at one point it was a triple or a quadruple, how many people still have those gains? Well, if you still own the stock, obviously you don't have the gains. You've lost the gains. The only people that made money on Peloton were the people who sold. Zoom video, another classic stay at home for businesses, right? We're not gonna have meetings. We're gonna have meetings on Zoom. Well, Zoom video down 65% from its peak. DocuSign, right? Oh, everybody's going to have to sign stuff online. And of course, 
They will, but there's lots of competition in that space. DocuSign down 63%. Teladoc, oh, well, people are going to do the healthcare online, right? Stocks down 77% from its high. Chegg, a lot of people might not have heard of that company. It was profiting from the homeschooling, right? People aren't sending their kids to school, so they're going to have to homeschool. And so this company caters to the homeschooling crowd. Stocks down 77% from its peak. What about Zillow, right? Zillow was also kind of a stay-at-home stock because a lot of people were moving. They were going to relocate from the cities to the suburbs because they didn't have to go to work anymore. They needed more space. And so they were going to get more into real estate. And in fact, Zillow actually entered the home flipping market briefly, which was also part of the bubble. Zillow stock down 76% from its peak. Also, all the stocks related to payments, related to crypto, getting killed. Square down 60%. Coinbase, recent IPO last year with direct listing down 55%. PayPal down 48%. Other streaming stocks, you know, I mentioned Netflix, obviously, again, a key stay-at-home stock. But Roku also, same reason. Roku down 69%. From its peak. Another category of stocks that garnered a lot of attention, the pay later stocks, you know, the big buyout of Afterpay. Take a look at a firm down 68%. Also, with the run up in Tesla, the EV stocks, Rivian was one of those darlings. Rivian now down 69%. Of course, these stocks haven't finished falling. This is just how much they're down so far. But another group of stocks that hasn't been completely decimated yet, but that's falling, which really is confounding the experts, but not me, because this is exactly what I predicted, is the weakness in the financials. Look at Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs dropped 1.2% on Friday. It's down 9.7% on the week, 10.1% so far this year, and 19.3% from its peak. We are almost in a bear market in the darling of the banks, Goldman Sachs. JP Morgan, not that far behind, down 1.75% on the day, 8% on the week, 8.4% on the month and 16% so far from its high. It's also closing in on a bear market. The story was the financials were supposed to benefit from rising interest rates because they were going to make more money charging higher interest. I've always maintained that that was nonsense. The financials were primary beneficiaries of low interest rates because it meant they could make more loans. It meant that their products were cheaper. More people could afford to borrow when interest rates are low than when they're high. So you have a higher loan volume. Also, when low interest rates are pushing up asset prices, the collateral that you can use to borrow against is going up. And so the banks can loan more money when they have more collateral. My point was that when interest rates went up, 
the price of borrowing would go up and consumers would respond, if it costs more to borrow, you're going to borrow less. That would be bad for the banks. Even though they would earn more money on the loans they make, they would make fewer loans, and so their profits would go down. But more importantly, the collateral for the loans that they already made would collapse, and a lot of those loans would end up going bad in a high interest rate environment, and they would have to take losses because the collateral may be inadequate to cover the loans. And so I always said, be careful what you wish for, investors in financials because higher interest rates are actually bad, not good. And that is exactly how it's playing out. Gold and silver prices were down a bit on Friday, but still finished with nice gains on the week, largely because of the huge rally we had on Wednesday in both gold and silver. In fact, when I did my podcast on Tuesday, I talked about the 50 cent surge in the price of silver, despite the fact that gold prices were slightly negative on the day due to the big rise in bond yields. And I thought that that might portend a bigger move in the metals. And sure enough, the very next day on Wednesday, silver shot up another 70 cents, making a two-day move of $1.20, and gold rose $30 an ounce. And that's why we still were able to close the week around 1835 on gold and 2427 on silver. But we had a lot of strength in silver and gold mining stocks on that day. Sure, they gave back a little bit of the strength over the last couple of days, but we had some silver stocks up 12, 13% on Wednesday. Many gold stocks were up six, seven, 8% on the day. So there is some tremendous underlying strength in that sector that I think is gonna manifest itself in a much bigger way in the weeks and months ahead. But the most significant thing about the sell-off is that it's not global. Everything isn't going down. This is not 2008 all over again when everything tanked along with the U.S. stock market and the dollar went through the roof. In fact, the dollar was down on the week. I mean, it's not down a lot, but it was down. What's significant is that it didn't rally. Investors weren't taking refuge in the dollar. They bought the yen, they bought the Swiss franc, they even bought the euro over the dollar. Gold was going down when the markets crashed in 2008. It's not going down now. It's actually going up slowly. And that means eventually it's going to go up fast because if it can't go down, it's going up. And the dollar managed to be up on the week despite that small decline on Friday, but it is down on the year, not a lot. It's down about a third of a percent, but down is down. But what's more significant is that it's not up. But again, the most significant thing is that a lot of stocks are bucking the trend. Now, oil stocks, you know, they gave up some of their gains and some of the other material stocks sold off on Friday, but they're still up nicely on the year. But a lot of the other value-oriented dividend-paying stocks bucked the trend on Thursday and Friday. Many of the stocks in our portfolios were up on those two days and finished with nice gains on the week. In fact, if you take a look at two of my mutual funds, as an example, the dividend payers fund and the value fund, so far this year, the value fund is up 2% and the dividend payers fund is up 2.5%. Now, first of all, someone's gonna say, well, why are you bragging about being up two or 2.5%? That's not a lot. Well, it's not even a month. I mean, if you have a two, two and a half percent return in a month, that annualizes out to a 25, 30% return over a year. 
which is a good return. Maybe it's not the type of return that people got used to during the bubble, but that was a bubble. And now people are paying the price for those big paper gains with real losses that are happening right now. But what's more significant than the fact that these funds were up to 2.5% is the relative outperformance because the NASDAQ and the Russell 2000 were down 11.5 and 11.6% during the same period of time that these funds are up two and two and a half percent. That divergence is enormous. And I think it is gonna continue. Now I realize that we have a long way to go to catch up to the underperformance relative to the NASDAQ, for example, over the last 10 years, but at the rate we're making up lost ground, it's not going to take very long. I think by the end of this year, maybe the end of next year at the latest, we will have completely caught up and will be ahead of the NASDAQ over that period of time, over a 10-year time period, based on how much further the NASDAQ is likely to fall and how much further value stocks and dividend-paying stocks are likely to rise. Because remember, the opportunity cost that I mentioned earlier in the podcast of buying value stocks no longer exists. You're not giving up big gains on momentum stocks when you buy a value stock because the momentum is down now. You're avoiding losses by buying a value stock. So more people are going to buy them. The prices are going to go higher. The dividends are going to be there. And ultimately, the bottom is going to drop out of the dollar. And that's going to be a huge tailwind for these international value and dividend paying stocks that are denominated in foreign currencies as the dollar collapses and those currencies go up, that adds to the gains that you're getting on the stock and then the dividend is thrown in on top. In fact, look at what's happening with inflation in Europe. In Germany, producer prices exploded by 5% in the month of December alone. Year-over-year, producer prices up 24%. Consumer prices are headed way up in Germany in 2022 and other parts of Europe, and the ECB will not be able to justify its monetary policy on the basis that there's not enough inflation and we need more when they already have much too much. So ultimately, when the ECB is forced to tighten its policy, that is going to compound the problems for the dollar and U.S. inflation. And as I said on my last several podcasts, it's not too late to get in on this. This is early days in this rotation. We're just getting started. I think the outsized overperformance will be front-loaded into this year and maybe next year, but I think it's going to continue for the remainder of the decade. But the sooner you can get on board, the better. And the sooner you can get out of these overpriced momentum stocks, the bigger the loss that you'll avoid and the more of the gain you'll be able to enjoy by reallocating those funds into the value dividend paying part of the market, both developed markets, emerging markets, commodity linked investments, precious metals, gold and silver, all of that stuff I think is going to deliver phenomenal performance throughout the balance of this year and the balance of this decade. From head to toe, your body is made up of trillions of cells which are busy performing their specific functions to keep you healthy and resilient. To keep up all the work, a sufficient supply of an essential molecule called NAD plus must be maintained for cells to perform their normal functions, which includes creating ATP for cellular energy, repairing your cells, and supporting healthy mitochondria. Many common lifestyle factors that can decrease your cells' NAD plus supply include alcohol consumption, excess sun exposure, 
poor diet, and even environmental factors such as pollution. True Niagen helps fuel the cell's energy and can safely and effectively elevate your NAD plus levels, giving each one of your hardworking cells exactly what it needs to perform at its best. And right now you can save 20% on your first purchase at trueniagen.com slash Peter when you use the promo code Peter. That's trueniagen, T-R-U-N-I-A-G-E-N.com slash Peter and use the promo code Peter to save 20% off on your first purchase. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. But I want to get to the worst performing assets of them all. And these are the most speculative of the assets, the cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin in particular. You know, by the way, there are over 17,000 now. This week, we went to over 17,000 altcoins that compete for market share with Bitcoin. And, you know, as the number of cryptocurrencies is growing, the value of the combined market cap of all those cryptocurrencies is shrinking. Looking at coin market cap, the total capitalization is about 1.64 trillion for the 17,036 cryptocurrencies. That's still a big number. So there's still a lot of air to come out of that bubble. You know, by the way, Tether is the third most valuable crypto right now with a market cap of 78.3 billion. I think by the time the air comes out of this bubble, Tether will be the number one coin. Now, that's a big move because right now, Bitcoin's got a market cap of $678 billion, Ether $297 billion. But of course, I have a feeling that Tether's market cap is fake because I don't think that there's $78.3 billion sitting in the bank somewhere collateralizing all this Tether. I think Tether is a fractional reserve system. I don't think there's anywhere near the dollars. And so that whole system is an accident waiting to happen. But Bitcoin got clobbered on Friday, was down better than 10% on the day. And in fact, the decline continued after the U.S. stock market closed. So if you measure the day based on a 24-hour period, the decline was even bigger. In fact, earlier this morning, I saw Bitcoin trade for a low of 34,000 per Bitcoin. Now, it has since rallied off those lows. I mean, nothing's gonna fall in a straight line. As I'm recording this, we're closer to 36,000, 35,700 or something like that, but still way down. If you look at Bitcoin's decline so far on the year, measured to that 34,000 low, That's a 28% decline so far in 2022, and it's better than a 50% decline from the peak price back in November, which was just below 70,000, I think 69,000 or so per coin. We've now dropped just over 50% from that level. And if you remember, what was everybody saying when Bitcoin was honing in on 70,000, 100,000? You had people that were predicting 200,000, We went the other way fast and we have a long way to go. In fact, one of the most interesting things about this decline is how orderly it is, how complacent everybody is, how there's no panic, there's no capitulation. Everybody is holding and hoping. Everybody's got diamond hands. Nobody is concerned because they've been so conditioned to expect this kind of action. But again, 
The other thing that is amazing is if you look at a lot of these Bitcoin pumpers that are trying to calm the crowd just to make sure that nobody is worried about this decline, you will hear people talking about how, well, it's okay that Bitcoin is down because everything is down, right? And first of all, everything is not down because gold's not down. Right. So if you're claiming your digital gold and gold's not down, clearly you're different from gold. If you know, you're down 28 percent on the year and gold is flat. But people are saying, well, look at all these tech stocks. They're all going down. These momentum stocks, they're all going down. And so it makes sense that Bitcoin goes down, too. Well, yes, it does make sense to me. But remember, these same people who are saying it's okay that Bitcoin is going down And the excuse is that everything is going down. Once upon a time, not too long ago, they were touting Bitcoin as a non-correlated asset. The reason to own it was because it wasn't correlated. It was going to be a hedge. So if the risky assets in your portfolio were going down, Bitcoin might go up and it would offset the decline. If they're now conceding that Bitcoin is a risk asset And whenever risk assets go down, it's going to go down too. In fact, it's going to go down more. What the hell is the purpose of having Bitcoin in your portfolio? If it's just going to exacerbate the downturns and not do anything to hedge, there is no basis for owning Bitcoin in the first place. The same people who were telling everybody to buy it because it was non-correlated are now telling them not to worry that it's going down because everything is going down. And so why would you expect otherwise from Bitcoin? And of course, the media, when I hear people saying this on CNBC, none of the people that work there, none of the anchors call these people out on their hypocrisy, on their lies. They just let them get away with it. In fact, one of the other lies that people are telling, this is Michael Saylor is saying this, and I don't know if it's a lie because maybe he just believes it and, you know, and he's being honest. I mean, Anthony Pompliano is making the same analogy. I mean, I think Anthony is sincere. He's just wrong, but they're telling people not to worry about Bitcoin going down because you're long-term investors, you're in it for the long-term. The best time horizon is forever. That's what Michael Saylor keeps saying. He's going to hold Bitcoin forever. Well, you know what? He may end up holding it forever, although he may have to sell it because the MicroStrategy might end up going bankrupt. By the way, MicroStrategy stock was probably one of the weakest stocks, maybe the weakest stock on Friday. It was down 20.8% on the day, 25% on the week. It's down 31% so far this year, and it's down 71.4% since its peak. In fact, so far this year, MicroStrategy has wiped out the entire gain that it had in 2021. It was up 40% in 2021, but this year's 31% decline completely erased that. And so now if you take all of 2021 and 2022, the stock is down about 3% for the two years combined. Now, in the first month of 2021, the stock almost tripled, right? So people were sitting on huge paper profits on that stock in February. But if they didn't sell, which most people probably didn't do, all those paper profits are now gone and they're actually down. But think about what happened to the people who bought after that big run-up. They're down as much as 71.4% and the bleeding isn't over. There's an open wound and it's going to keep gushing out. And remember, Michael Saylor was trying to convince 
other CEOs. He had a whole summit inviting CEOs of other companies to put Bitcoin on their balance sheet as a replacement for cash to hedge against inflation. And now the price of Bitcoin is down 50%. Look at the disaster that is in the making for MicroStrategy, especially since they borrowed a lot of money to put that Bitcoin on their balance sheet. How many other CEOs are going to want to follow Saylor's lead given the disastrous path that he's taken his own shareholders down? That's it for institutions. No CEO is going to do what Saylor was claiming all CEOs would eventually do. The other equity too, while I'm talking about it, I didn't mention it, is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. I've been talking about that a lot. This trust, again, is highly correlated, not with gold, but with Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation Fund. The Grayscale Bitcoin Trust was down 11.8% on Friday. The discount is now about 28% to NAV. That trust was down 16.2% on the week, 25.3% on the year, and 56% from its peak. Look how closely that correlates to ARK Innovation. ARK, remember, down 24.4% on the year, 25.3% on Grayscale. ARK down 55.2% from its high. Grayscale down 56%, almost identical. To the extent that Bitcoin correlates to anything, it's that. And the reason they correlate with each other is they are overpriced investments. They're investments that foolish people were piling into based on the premise that a greater fool would pay an even higher price. That's why they're so correlated because they're part of that same dynamic. But getting back to the point that I was about to make on how people like Michael Saylor are rationalizing the decline is they're saying it doesn't matter because we're long-term investors and we're going to hold forever. And they're invoking Warren Buffett. And it's interesting that these guys like to quote Warren Buffett when it's convenient because Warren Buffett has called Bitcoin rat poison squared. Right. So they don't like to look to the Oracle when he's telling them that their favorite cryptocurrency is worthless. Right. But now all of a sudden they want to pick a quote that they like, which is my favorite time period is forever. Warren Buffett likes to buy stocks and never sell them. And so now they're saying, yep, that's what we want to do with Bitcoin. Just what Warren Buffett does. We want to buy Bitcoin and never sell it. Well, Warren Buffett would never make that statement with respect to Bitcoin. Why does Warren Buffett like to buy stocks and never sell them? Because they're businesses that he owns. And those businesses are generating earnings. And out of earnings, he is being paid dividends. So he gets paid money every year he owns a good stock. And as long as the stock that he buys, if the company continues to do well, continues to increase its earnings, continues to raise its dividend, then why ever sell it? That is the point that Warren Buffett is trying to make. You can't make the same argument with Bitcoin because Bitcoin pays nothing. No interest, no dividend, no rent. How can you hold something forever that never throws off a return? The only way you make money with Bitcoin is to sell it. So by definition, forever can never be your time horizon because then you'll never get a benefit out of it. You have to sell your Bitcoin in order to make money. And that's the problem because the only way you can sell is if somebody else buys. But why would you want to buy something that has no income and keeps going down in price? 
That is the flaw that nobody seems to understand when it comes to Bitcoin. And of course, a lot of times when people buy something as a short-term trade and it immediately goes against them, instead of doing the right thing and admitting their mistake and cutting their losses by selling, all of a sudden they turn it into a long-term position and they justify holding it based on the fact that they're a long-term investor. Remember, a lot of people who jumped on board the Bitcoin train expected it to go straight up. Now that it's gone in the other direction, what they need to do is realize that they made a mistake, not try to bury their head in the sand and just hold and hope, which is what everybody is doing. But of course, while the big shots are encouraging the little guys to hold and hope, they are dumping. Why do you think the price is going down? Somebody is selling. As I pointed out, we had record amounts of money spent by the crypto industry, advertising constantly, bombarding the public, pushing institutions, pushing countries like El Salvador. By the way, the president of El Salvador bought more Bitcoin, tweeted it out again on Friday, buying the whole way down. There was buying coming in, but there was selling. It was all a pump and dump. The smart money has been unloading crypto and they're going to continue to unload all the way down as the faithful minions continue to operate under the delusion that they're changing the world and they measure their faith and their commitment to the cause by their willingness to never sell, to hold and hope and have diamond hands indefinitely. And that's exactly what the people who want to sell need. Because if everybody tries to get out, then nobody can get out. And so the only reason some people can sell is because others are not. In fact, during the week, both Russia and Singapore announced crackdowns on Bitcoin, referring to them as financial pyramid schemes. They want to protect their citizens from losing money in these frauds in what amounts to nothing more than a digital chain letter. But still very frustrating to watch the coverage on CNBC. And the only reason I watch CNBC is to get material for the podcast, but also to see the nonsense that the investment public is being told. It's a great contrarian indicator to watch that network. In fact, nobody else needs to watch it. I'm watching it for you and I'll be able to communicate what's going on. But I was watching on Friday as Bitcoin is melting down and they're continuing to tout it. They're continuing to bring people up to sing its praises and talk about how it's a store of value, which how could anybody still tout it as a store of value when it's already down 50% in the last couple of months? In fact, when you have these big Bitcoin pumpers now rationalizing the decline based on the fact that everything else is down too and admitting that Bitcoin trades like a speculative asset, how could you claim it's a speculative asset and a store of value at the same time? In fact, I hear a lot of people say it's a speculative store of value, which is kind of like an oxymoron. It's like military intelligence. The whole purpose of being a store of value is that you're not speculative. You can't be both, right? Bitcoin wants to simultaneously be risky and conservative at the same time, which is a dichotomy that can't exist. And yet they can't even rationalize this. The people who are trapped in this bubble can't even see something as obvious as that. 
But I want to reiterate this point because it seems to be completely lost on so many people when they're trying to claim that Bitcoin is a store value. Again, this guy was on CNBC or Gal, I forget who it was, and she was saying that Bitcoin continues to take market share away from gold in the store value market, which it's not. I mean, people are buying Bitcoin potentially instead of gold, but not as a store of value. They're buying it to speculate. But Bitcoin can never be a store of value because you have to have value before you can store it. Now, every time I get into this argument with these Bitcoin people, they always want to talk about the monetary properties of gold, the portability, the divisibility, the fungibility, and they want to talk about how Bitcoin has improved on all of those characteristics. It's more divisible, it's more portable, it's more transportable. And I will concede all of those points. Yes, Bitcoin has done an excellent job of replicating the monetary properties of gold. But what it hasn't done is replicate the metallic properties of gold, the physical properties that give gold value and without which it never would have been money. Bitcoin has to have value and it doesn't. It's not digital gold because it can't do anything in the real world that gold can do. I don't know why people don't understand this. It's simple if you think about other items. What about digital food? Can you live on a diet of digital food? No, you'll starve to death. I mean, I can make digital images that look just like real food, but they don't have any nourishment. I can't live on it. What about a digital house? Yes, I can have a huge digital mansion, but... I can't sleep in it. It's not going to keep me dry when it rains. It's not going to keep me warm in the cold. It's not a house. And digital gold is not gold. Yes, it's digital. It may look like gold, but it doesn't function like gold. It doesn't have any of the value of gold. When I own gold as a store of value, what am I storing? The value of the metal. Gold is used. Gold is used in jewelry, it's used in industry, and if I don't want to use it myself, if I just want to put it in a bar and shove it in a vault, what am I doing? I am storing it so that either I can use that gold or I can sell it to somebody else who will use that gold in the future. And what makes it such a great store of value is in the future that gold will be identical no matter how long it's in my vault. It could stay in there for 100 years and it'll be exactly the way it was when I put it in there. It doesn't lose any of its properties over time. So it's a store of value and its price reflects all that value into the present. But there is no use case for Bitcoin. There's nothing I can actually do with Bitcoin today. And if I give it to somebody in 100 years, there's nothing they can do with it then either. So there is no value that can be stored. Oh, and by the way, a lot of people like to claim that, oh, you know, but gold's actual value as a metal is tiny. It's almost all this monetary premium, which is a bunch of nonsense. There is some monetary premium with respect to gold, but Bitcoin doesn't have a monetary premium because in order to have a premium, you have to have some value that the premium is built on. Bitcoin has no value. It's 100% monetary premium, but without a base, it doesn't matter because you can't have a premium unless you build it on top of something. But one of the reasons that gold will have a higher value than other commodities is because gold is eternal. Gold can be used and reused over and over again. And so its price is going to reflect that. But the reason that I believe gold is underpriced right now 
is I believe that the markets are underestimating future inflation because the price of gold today actually encapsulates all of the forecasts for future inflation and it is discounted into the present price of gold. So right now you have a very benign outlook about inflation, even though it's picked up recently, investors expect the Fed to rein it back in and inflation to come back down. And so it's those low inflation expectations that are a reason that the price of gold is 1,840 and not much higher. But what is going to happen in the coming years is investors are going to realize that they're wrong, that inflation is going to be much higher than they thought. And once they recognize that, and now they have to reprice gold based on the fact that inflation that they expect is now going to be much higher, then they're going to have to increase the price of gold in the present to reflect those increased inflation expectations for the future. Now, you can look at that as a monetary premium because it is a store of value, but is reflecting what gold is going to be worth in the future relative to other commodities that will be produced in the future at a higher price because everything is going to be affected by inflation. But people aren't storing wheat to eat in 10 years. New wheat is going to be grown 10 years from now, but the price could be a lot higher based on the cost of producing it because of 10 years of inflation. Well, that 10 years of inflation is already discounted into the current price of an ounce of gold that's already produced and is sitting in your vault. Bitcoin also finally completed the head and shoulders top pattern that I had been forecasting on this podcast would be completed. So we finished the right shoulder. We cracked below the neckline. The neckline was around 40,000. We're way below it now in 35,000 and change. The projection of that move is well below 30,000. The problem is once we get below about 29,000, we have put in a massive double top in Bitcoin that projects a far larger move well below the 20,000 peak from 2017, I'd say even below 10,000. And in fact, once we get below that 29,000-ish area, we could have a real crash. As I mentioned, so far the decline has been orderly, no sign of capitulation. I think that's coming. We're gonna have a crash. That may usher in some type of dead cat bounce. Maybe we'll get a tradable rally in Bitcoin close to 20,000, that may be the new resistance. Even if it goes sub 10,000, it might bounce under there, but you have to sell into that rally if for some reason you still own it, or maybe you took a punt on it and you bought it during the crash. But if you buy it, you got to sell it. Because as I said, you can't hold it forever because Bitcoin is not a long-term investment because in the long-term, it's zero. So the only way to make money in Bitcoin is to sell it before that happens. But I want to finish up the podcast by getting back to the dilemma that the Federal Reserve is now in because they are about to embark on a tightening campaign at a time where the markets and the economy are rolling over. As I mentioned earlier, the Russell 2000 is almost in a bear market. Goldman Sachs is almost in a bear market. You've got the financials, you've got the tech stocks going down, 
and the economy is also rolling over. Look at the jobless claims that came out on Thursday. They were expecting 207,000 which actually would have been a decline from the prior week's 230,000. The prior week's number was actually notched up to 231,000. But the recent week, instead of dropping to 207,000, it exploded to 286,000. That's a 55,000 jump in a single week. Blew through the high end of the estimated range, which was from a low of 200,000 claims to a high of 232,000 claims. So a lot of people losing their jobs. This could be the beginning of a trend of increasing unemployment just as the Fed is going to be raising interest rates. Also, again, stock market, as it's going down, it has a reverse wealth effect. A lot of people are a lot less wealthy because of the collapsing stock prices, and they'll continue to go down as long as the Fed continues to pretend or maybe even not pretend that it's going to raise interest rates and do quantitative tightening. You know, despite the fact of talking about quantitative tightening, the Fed's balance sheet soared, I think, to a new record last week, $8.868 trillion, up $79.5 billion on the week. So even as bond prices were tanking on the week, although they recovered a little bit on Friday with the carnage in the stock market, but we still had a down week in bonds, up week in yields, the Fed was probably in there buying to help support the market. Otherwise, it would have even been a bigger collapse and an even larger increase in yields. But that reverse wealth effect is going to take a toll on the economy. As I pointed out in the past, I think one reason that a lot of people aren't in the labor force is because they're making so much money trading meme stocks and cryptocurrencies. Well, now that they're losing all their gains, I think a lot of millennials may now feel pressure to go look for a job. And that means they have to re-enter the labor force. And if they don't immediately find a job, they join the ranks of the unemployed. And so the unemployment rate keeps notching up, even as the Fed is now looking to tighten rates, when normally it would want to ease policy if unemployment is rising. But now it's in a box where it's supposed to tighten policy. And in fact, the main reason that they want to go slow and do these quarter point rate hikes, because if you've got 7% inflation, What's this about, oh, we're going to raise rates a little bit in March, and then we're going to raise them three or four times throughout the course of the year, and then we're going to slowly raise them again? If you're so far behind the inflation curve, why don't you just go right up to 2 or 3%? Not that that would even be effective, because that would still be too loose in the world of 7% plus inflation, but why don't they do that? Because the Fed wants to move incrementally, and that goes back to Alan Greenspan. The Fed basically made the same mistake when they started raising interest rates in 2004 because in 2003, they had slashed interest rates all the way down to 1%. And then when it came time to raising rates, instead of just moving up quickly, which they should have done, in fact, they never should have reduced them all the way to 1%, but the reason that Greenspan raised rates by 25 basis points every meeting was because Greenspan didn't want to hurt the stock market, didn't want to hurt the housing market. So he thought that a slow, gradual increase that was well telegraphed, the markets could handle that because they would have time to price it in. 
Whereas if he just immediately moved up interest rates, it could shock the markets and there could be a crash and Greenspan didn't want that. Well, the Fed is still following that playbook, even though we now have this huge inflation problem that would argue for much faster increase in interest rates, the Fed is still worried about hurting the markets. But of course, because Greenspan took that approach, he allowed the real estate bubble to get much, much bigger. A lot more adjustable rate loans, a lot more subprime loans were taken out. None of those loans would have been taken out had the Fed jacked rates up quicker. The teaser rates that a lot of people took advantage of were simply a function of how long the Fed kept interest rates low because it wanted to move gradually so as not to upset the markets. And so as a result, we got a much bigger housing bubble and then we got the 2008 financial crisis. Had the Fed done the right thing and raised interest rates more quickly, that financial crisis never would have happened. It was the consequence of the Fed's desire not to cause a short-term sell-off in the market. Well, they're acting off that same desire now, except they've already caused a sell-off in the market simply by talking about raising rates. Now, the same dynamic happened in 2018, except there the Fed was actually able to raise interest rates a few times before the market broke. But at this point, the bubble is now so big that the market breaks even before you raise rates. The market breaks just on the talk that in the future, the Fed may raise rates, which means they may never get around to doing it. Because what's going to happen in March when everybody expects the Fed to raise rates if we're in a bear market in stocks, if the economy is rolling over? Will the Fed raise rates? I doubt it. And in fact, what the Fed will say is they will claim that the weakness in the economy, the reverse wealth effect from falling stocks, the increase in unemployment, that will take care of the inflation problem because they're going to be looking at it from a demand side. They're going to say a weak economy means less demand and that means lower prices. And so now we don't have to worry about inflation anymore. We can go back to stimulus. Well, they're wrong because once again, they're going to overlook the supply side. Supply is going to continue to contract, especially when the Fed reverses course because that will knock the legs out from under the dollar. The dollar will collapse the minute the Fed has to reverse course on tightening. The minute they have to cut rates or cancel the rate hikes, the minute they have to expand the QE program rather than tapering it or reversing it, that's it for the dollar. The dollar is going to tank. And when that happens, you're going to get even more upward pressure on consumer prices. In fact, there already is a lot of upward pressure. There is a huge pipeline of inflation Prices have barely moved relative to where they're going. So even if we get a market slowdown in the economy, we're still going to deal with the pent-up inflation that we haven't even seen materialize yet. And so the economy is going to weaken, but inflation is going to strengthen. It is stagflation. As I've said, the Fed has put itself and the country into a box. There is no way out. Either direction that we go in is a disaster. We just have to pick the poison. But fortunately, as investors, we don't have to swallow any of it personally. We can reallocate our portfolios. We can get out of these overpriced stocks while they're still overpriced. And there's a lot of 
downside left, and we can buy the undervalued assets around the world that have been left for dead and that are now coming back to life, and we can get out of U.S. dollars before the bottom drops out, get into foreign currencies, we can get into gold, we can get into the mining stocks, we still have this window of opportunity while other people are still oblivious to what's going on, they're still the deer in the headlight, they have no idea what's about to hit them. Well, we know, we've been looking out for this, we've been expecting this for years, and so we're not blindsided by it, we're not surprised. The only thing that surprises me is how long it took to get here. 